0: Before we get started today, I'd like to ask you, our listeners, to take a moment to fill out our listener survey. We want to learn more about what you think of this podcast, who you are, and what you'd like to hear from us. So if you could, after you listen to this episode, please go to our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org and look for the link to the listener survey. We'd really appreciate it if you would take it. Thank you. Now on to the episode. About 1 in 36 children in the U.S. has been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder according to the most recent Centers for Disease Control estimates. Many of those children are not diagnosed until they're 3 to 5 years old, and some even later than that. Scientists used to think that it was not possible to diagnose autism at a much younger age, But recent research using artificial intelligence, brain biomarkers, and other methods has pointed to the possibility of earlier detection and earlier intervention. Today, we'll talk about research on autism, autism diagnosis, and interventions. Why has the number of diagnoses risen so steeply in recent years? Why is autism so much more common in boys than in girls? And how might these new technologies and methods change autism detection and intervention? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. My guest today is Dr. Geraldine Dawson, the William Cleland Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University. She is also Director of the Duke Center for Autism and Brain Development, Dr. Dawson's work focuses on improving methods for early detection and intervention for autism and understanding brain function in autism. Earlier in her career, she co-developed the Early Start Denver model, an empirically validated early autism intervention that is used worldwide. She collaborates with colleagues in the departments of computer science and engineering, pediatrics and biostatistics to develop novel digital health approaches to autism screening and outcome monitoring. Dr. Dawson has won many awards for her work, including a Distinguished Career Award from APA's Society of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology. Dr. Dawson, thank you for joining me today.
1: I'm very happy to be here.
0: Can you start by just giving us some background on what autism spectrum disorder is and encompasses? Because it can look very different in different people. Is that correct?
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. In fact, there's a saying that says if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And the reason for that is that it is a very heterogeneous um, condition. So, for example, about 30% of people on the autism spectrum uh, never learn to speak. Uh, Many may require uh, 24-7 care to help them with their very basic needs. Um, And at the other end of the continuum, there are um, individuals who are highly intelligent, intelligent. we have an autistic researcher here at the center who has a PhD in physics. Uh, so there's just this huge continuum. So that does beg the question then, um, you know, what is autism? What, what brings all of this together? And in every case, uh, the individual uh, has some challenges in navigating the social world, uh, may have some difficulty in picking up on social cues. And interpreting sort of the normal type of social information, uh, such as gestures, facial expressions, Um, that individual also may have trouble uh, forming social relationships. Uh, So, for example, uh, developing peer relationships um, and just understanding sort of the back and forth reciprocal nature of relationships. And then there's also another category of behaviors, which have to do with the tendency to engage in what we call a restricted range of interests or behaviors. So that individual may be um, highly interested in one topic and want to talk about that topic and spend most of the time thinking about that topic. Um, May also show some repetitive motor behaviors. And then finally, uh, with the DSM-5, an additional trait was added, and that is differences in sensory sensitivity. So it may be um, sensitivity to sound or to light um, or to touch. Um, And so all of these things together um, comprise what we call the autism syndrome. Um, And then, uh, you know, this may be manifest in very different ways depending on each individual.
0: Now, some of our listeners might be familiar with the term Asperger's syndrome, but that term isn't used now. Can you explain why that's fallen out of favor? Yeah, so Asperger's syndrome um,
1: was defined as having difficulties in the areas of social interaction and communication, um, as well as those uh, restricted and repetitive behaviors, but not having um, intellectual disability or language delay. And so that um, sort of beg the question of um, how is that different than just an individual uh, on the autism spectrum, you know, who doesn't have intellectual disability. Um, so, you know, there were many studies that tried to disentangle those two uh, ways of thinking about people on the highest end of the spectrum, and we really couldn't define any differences. The other thing is that clinicians were very unreliable in diagnosing Um, you know, autism without intellectual disability versus Asperger's syndrome. And then finally, uh, since many individuals are not diagnosed until later in life, um, it required uh, the individual to base their symptom or their behavior on history, right? You would have to ask the individual when you were a child, did you have any difficulty developing language? And that was simply unreliable. People couldn't really remember you know, what their language history was many years later. So for all those reasons, um, the DSM uh, committee, and by the way, that's the uh, American Psychiatric Association Committee that comes up with uh, the diagnostic criteria. They decided that it was best to um, go ahead and eliminate that and think of autism as just a spectrum. Um, And then some individuals also have intellectual disability and language delay. And I think that change has been good. It did create some, I think, um, challenges for people who really identified with uh, being uh, uh, having the diagnosis of Asperger syndrome. Um, you know, so-called Aspies, or there were um, a lot of groups that that came together to socialize that um, were diagnosed with Asperger syndrome. And so there was a point made that people could certainly. Continue to consider that, you know, as a personal way of describing themselves or personal identity. It just wasn't going to be recognized anymore by the, uh, according to the uh, American Psychiatric Association's diagnostic criteria.
0: Well, that makes sense. Well, let me ask you what we know about the causes of autism. Is it genetic? Is it caused by something that happened to the mother during pregnancy or something else?
1: So um, the causes of autism are complex. Uh, I think it's first, it's important to keep in mind that autism is a um, condition that is a difference in the way the brain develops. And so just as in uh, neurotypical individuals, there are many factors that uh, contribute to how you know each of us has a different brain in terms of, of its capabilities, its strengths, its weaknesses, um, and how it develops. And that includes both uh, genetic factors. So autism is a highly genetic condition. Um, it can run in families. Um, and uh, you do see, you know, families with uh, multiple children with a diagnosis of autism. Um, interestingly, it also runs in families with other uh, conditions such as ADHD. So there um, there seems to be some overlap g- and genetically between autism and ADHD. So genetic factors are clearly uh, contributing and they are contributing in such a way that the brain is developing differently, we know, um, starting in the prenatal period. Um, and we also know that during the prenatal period, anything uh, that is going to affect the mother that also affects the brain of the baby that's developing could contribute to differences in uh, brain development and also could, in that sense, uh, contribute to autism. So, for example, one of the um, theories that is being investigated is um, what's called the uh, maternal immune activation hypothesis. And what that is um, is a hypothesis that uh, environmental conditions – that activate the mother's immune system will influence the way that the fetal brain uh, is developing. Um, It used to be thought that the the brain of the fetus was entirely protected from um, these environmental conditions that the mother may be experiencing that affected her immune system. But now we know that um, actually anything that is activating her immune system during pregnancy could potentially affect um, you know, aspects of the brain development, and particularly cells uh, that are called the microglia, which are immune-related cells in the brain that actually um, participate in the development of s- synapses and the formation of the brain. So what, what can um, affect the mother's immune system during pregnancy? Really a wide range of conditions. So, for example, stress um, you know, activates our immune system. Um, environmental factors such as toxins, so pesticides or air traffic, uh, uh pollution can activate our immune system. Um, having a, uh, significant, um, infectious disease associated with high fever will obviously affect your immune system. And, and in fact, there's been studies now looking at, you know, the impact of having COVID-19 during pregnancy on, uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the neurodevelopmental outcomes of the baby, and, and there can be an impact. So uh, we believe that it is this combination of both genetic susceptibilities with environmental factors, particularly those that affect the mother during pregnancies, that are shaping all of our brains, right? Not just in autism, but also um, are contributing to differences that we then ultimately would diagnose as, as autism.
0: So I mentioned in my introduction, the prevalence of ASD is much higher among boys than it is among girls, uh, four times higher, in fact. Do researchers know why? Yes, that's
1: it's been an amazing um, kind of phenomenon to watch the prevalence of autism increasing uh, over, over the last several decades. I've been in the field for many decades now. And when I first started um, as a as a psychologist, uh, I thought I would be this expert in, um, helping individuals with this very rare condition. Um, and I imagined, uh, sort of myself, I was in the Northwest then as being kind of the person that might serve people in the Northwest or the Western part of the United States. Um, and now of course, you know, uh, autism spectrum disorder is really relatively common. And, um, to, to, to be truthful, we don't completely understand, um, you know, even the the epidemiologists and experts in in the area of, you know, understanding differences in, in um, prevalence and so forth, like people at the CDC, they don't fully understand why there's been an increase. But when we do study it, what we find is um, there really has been changes in both the diagnostic uh, criteria where they've now broadened. Um, somewhat from where the criteria that we had early on. And then secondly, we're just so much better at um, recognizing autism. And you probably yourself, you know, now, um, you know, can recognize autism, whereas, you know, 30 years ago, you probably couldn't. Um, So I think that we're now able to diagnose autism uh, with individuals who have milder traits um, and also... Um, at a much earlier age. And, you know, keep in mind that these prevalence estimates are really based on just looking at how many times a person is, how many people are diagnosed in a particular geographic area. And so if you see, you know, if we're getting better at early detection, we're going to see these these prevalence rates uh, go up. But we don't know whether there might have been, say, environmental factors that also could have contributed to the increase. Um, and it's also hard to know because the, di- the diagnostic criteria have changed over time. So, what you're measuring is changing right. um, and that just makes it very hard to know.
0: Well, a lot of your work has focused on early detection and intervention. What does early mean for an autism diagnosis? At what age is it typically diagnosed?
1: Uh, was, well, Let's start with when it can be reliably diagnosed. So we know that we can reliably diagnose autism by 18 to 24 months, um, certainly by 36 months, but 18 to 24 months, um, that diagnosis is, is, is quite stable. Um The average age of diagnosis, though, in the United States is closer to five years of age and even higher for families of color um, or individuals who uh, may not have the resources to, um, you know, be able to obtain a diagnosis. So it takes many more visits to the doctor, for example, for a black child to receive a diagnosis than it does for a white child. So... We know we can diagnose by 18 to 24 months. We're obviously not doing a good enough job because the average age is much higher. And by the way, the other um, thing that that contributes to delay in diagnosis is being a girl um, because girls, uh, we are just learning more about autism in girls and finding that um, the expression of the autism traits is a, a somewhat different. So as you know, in neurotypical individuals, females tend to be um, a bit better at social interaction and picking up on social cues. Uh, there's been studies uh, that have shown that, and this is true in autism as well. So uh, you may see um, better eye contact and um, therefore uh, many girls are missed. The other thing that contributes to missing um children is when autism is combined with uh, a psychiatric condition. So we know that, for example, about 50% of uh, individuals with autism also have ADHD. And so what happens um, is that when a young child presents with both autism and ADHD, uh, the ADHD symptoms tend to get more attention uh, because ADHD is often associated with um, what we call externalizing behaviors. These are things like, you know, you can't sit in your seat. Uh, you might be interrupting, you can't finish things. Uh, you might be, you know, blurting out and, um, those behaviors are very disruptive and they tend to catch our attention more. And, uh, we call this diagnostic overshadowing, shadowing when a person has two conditions and one is kind of more obvious that diagnosis tends to get, um, uh, you know the label for the child, and then the other one is missed. So when children have both autism and uh, ADHD, they tend to be diagnosed at a at a much higher age. Um, so, but I think the second question is, you know, when when do the early behaviors or early signs of autism uh, actually begin to emerge, and how early might we be able to detect autism? Uh, So there's a lot of work going on, and and we've been doing some of this work in our uh, lab as well, trying to identify autism in babies. Because uh, there's been many studies now that, um, and some of this work was done by um, our team where we looked at home videos of infants who then were later diagnosed of autism. But there's been many studies that have shown that between about 6 and 12 months of age, um, that the signs of autism begin to emerge in in the majority of infants. And those signs uh, could be um, the lack of communicative babbling. So we know, you know, during that period, babies tend to use consonant vowel sounds, you know, mama, baba, and they engage in this sort of back and forth with their parents. Um, That um, is often absent or much delayed. Um, The use of gestures, Um, so we know that during that period, uh, babies begin to um, start to use simple gestures such as bye-bye. They also develop what is called joint attention, which is a set of gestures where the baby is drawing the parent's attention to something, and they could do that, for example, by pointing at something to show them something. Or they might um, be interested if someone else points, they would follow that point and notice what others are doing. That's why we call it shared or joint attention. And those behaviors are quite diagnostic. Um, And so um, we see this lack of pointing, particularly to show. um, Another sign could be um, some uh, lack of interest in engaging with people as compared to objects. So this baby may be very interested in, um, objects and, and features of the non-social environment, um, uh, but maybe making less eye contact and not playing those baby games that we often see like pat a cake. And so, uh, those, and even the sensory sensitivities have been noticed in these young babies. So we should be able to pick up on autism during the infant period and we we're, we're working on a lot of different ways that we may be able to do that. Some of those um, are ways of measuring behaviors. Um, Other ways are um, trying to see whether we could detect early changes in the way the brain is working and functioning. Um, And I'm happy to talk about those, but there's a lot of work on looking at these brain-based what are called biomarkers to see whether um, we can detect these even before we might be able to diagnose uh, the full syndrome, which would be, you know, not until, say, 16 to 18 or 24 months of age.
0: when you're looking for brain-based biomarkers in very young children, uh, how do you do that in, in a lab? I mean, how do you take a baby that's six months old and do, you know, an fMRI, for example? You can hardly yeah. do that with adults sometimes. <laughs> actually babies are easier than adults.
1: <laughs> yes, for us who th- that do brain research, it's interesting that um, you know, babies, they they take naps and they, you know, they're they are actually much easier than the hardest period in terms of some of these measures is the toddler period where they want to, you know, get up and wiggle around and um But there there are lots of different ways of of studying the brain in infants. And most of the studies to date have um, followed infants who have an older sibling with autism that's already been diagnosed because we know that when there's one child in the family that's been diagnosed, that the um, probability that the second child will have autism is about one in five. So that is a much higher rate. Um, And so by following these what are called high likelihood infants um, prospectively and then taking brain measures and behavior measures during infants, infancy, we can then follow them longitudinally. And then when that one in five is diagnosed uh, with autism, we can look backwards and say, oh, well, what was different about their brain when we made those early measures? So that's that's the uh, the ways that the studies are mostly done, and in terms of the measures, um, there's been quite a bit of research looking at the development of the structure of the brain using MRI. Um, so uh, these are large collaborative studies occurring at multiple universities. In fact, um, one of the biggest studies is led by my colleague Joseph Piven, who's a psychiatrist. Uh, down the road at, at UNC, um, Chapel Hill, and because I'm at Duke, uh, not very close by. And so he, for the last several years, has been following very large uh, samples of high-risk infants or high-likelihood infants and then um, doing repeat MRIs to watch how the brain develops. And what he's found, he and his team, is that um, between six and 12 months of age that the white matter of the brain. So this is the part of the brain that helps different parts of the brain communicate with each other. So um, this is the myelin that goes around the, um, the, the uh, connections of the brain that makes it more efficient in terms of the ability to communicate between two brain regions and what they found is that there's differences in the development of this white matter that can be seen uh, by 6 to 12 months of age. And essentially, um, what, what people are finding is that autism is a condition that affects the neural connectivity across different regions of the brain um, and these these white matter fiber tracts. And if you think about uh, the... Uh, behaviors that are affected by autism, um, which mostly is around social interaction and communication. Those behaviors require the precise coordination across multiple brain regions. So think about, for example, if you're involved in, say, a conversation with another person. You're watching their facial gestures, you're listening to the sound of their voice, um, you're anticipating uh, the timing of the back and forth of the conversation. You're using your motor cortex to say words, for example. So even, you know, something like a conversation requires, you know, the frontal lobe, the visual cortex, the speech areas and auditory cortex, the motor cortex, and these all have to be functioning in precise coordination. And so we do think that autism um, affects the, the ability of the different brain regions to be coordinated in a way that to, to allow us to engage in these, um, very complex behaviors. Now, I do want to take the opportunity here, though, to stress that autism also is associated with many positive traits, um, skills and talents, and that it's, you know, very likely that the Um, sort of sacrifice of the ability to do some of these, you know, behaviors that are are important, obviously social interaction and communication, but um, it also offers the opportunity to be able to um, really view the world in a very different and unique way and to have very important and special talents. And it probably has to do with the fact that there's probably large areas of the brain that are now able to be used for other things you know whether it's mathematics or music or art um, or physics. Um, you know, so uh, you know it's important to really think about autism as a as a brain difference that that then uh, comes with challenges to be sure, but also with many um, very important and special strengths and talents as well.
0: Now, you published a study in February that found. That an artificial intelligence algorithm could detect autism risk by screening infants' medical records right from the first month of life—that's pretty incredible. How how did how does that work? So we we have been um,
1: we were awarded a grant from the National Institutes of Health that challenged us to come up with ways of uh, screening for autism in babies because. As I said before, it's clear that that autism starts in infancy and we want to begin, um, you know, intervention services and support as as early as possible. And so uh, we actually have been attacking this two ways. So one is to um, gather information about the baby's health care record to see if there are clues in terms of how the infant is utilizing the health care system that might indicate that that baby would be more likely to have a later diagnosis of autism. And the reason why we thought this might work is because autism is associated with um, quite a few medical conditions. So people think about autism as a behavioral health condition, um, and it is, uh, but it's also a physical health condition. So for example, um, many People diagnosed with autism also have difficulties uh, with the GI system. Um, So in babies, this could be um, reflux. It could be diarrhea, constipation, um, other GI-related conditions. And and actually, in our studies, we are finding that these start very early, within the first three months of life. So this is happening before we even start to see changes in behavior. A second one um, is differences in the way the motor system is developed. So uh, we find that even during the first year of life that babies who are going to go on to have a diagnosis of autism are visiting the physical therapist for difficulties in their motor development um, that that are affected in the first year. Um, We also see um, higher rates of sleep uh, disruptions uh trouble um establishing a circadian rhythm. And in fact, there's been research that shows that some of the genetics um, that genetic uh genes that are responsible for regulating our circadian rhythm uh, may contribute to autism. So there are other conditions as well, but um, what we found was that um, if we can study how the parent is, is bringing their baby to receive these medical services in the first year of life, that we can do a pretty good job of uh, predicting, even in the first month, that this um, you know baby will have a higher likelihood of a diagnosis of autism. And the, the idea here is that if, you know, there's no way that a pediatrician could be, you um, well, it would be very difficult for the pediatrician to have to look through and try to understand all of these patterns of healthcare care utilization when the, the pediatrician say seeing the baby for a well-child visit. Um, so yeah, but the computer can do this, right? So we can have the computer gathering all of this health related data. It could be all the diagnostic uh, codes, all the types of visits, all the medications, all the procedures. And then use artificial intelligence or machine learning to combine all of these data into an algorithm that then is predictive of um, a particular diagnosis, in this case, uh, autism. And we've been looking at the same thing for ADHD, by the way, and we find that um, these can be distinguished. So, for example, a baby who is going to have a later diagnosis of autism is going to be much more likely to have visited the emergency room um, by age one. And this may have to do, again, with that impulsive behavior, risk-taking, um, you know, other things that might lead to accidents, right, that would end up in an emergency room. So, um, the, you know, there's just a lot of information there that that then can, um, you know, help us to let the pediatrician know that they need to be paying special attention to this baby um, and monitoring the baby's development very closely. Um, And this information can be combined with what is called uh, clinical decision support. So this is a very active field now in healthcare, where um, pediatricians and other providers are provided with information about Whether this patient, you know, is a higher likelihood of um, developing, you know, a condition, it could be a heart-related condition, in this case, autism. And then also providing the physician with, well, what should they do about it? Um, So giving the physician through the computer um, advice about, okay, this means that, you know, you may want to make a referral for such and such, or depending on the age, you may actually want to refer for... Um, a diagnostic evaluation, but you know, here's ways that you can follow this baby and, and screen, you know, to see if the behaviors are merging. So that was one approach. And by the way, that that work was led by my colleague uh, Matthew Engelhard, who is um, both a physician and a biostatistician. So he combines both medicine and data science um, to do this really um, phenomenal work. And we're now. Uh, We've received more funding to continue to expand upon this work. Um, And then the second approach that we've been using um, is to use the computer to measure those early behavioral signs. So this work began um, to try to improve our ways of screening for autism. So currently, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all toddlers be screened universally for autism at their 18 and 24-month visit. And remember, that's the age where we can make a diagnosis. So, you know, it's good in terms of you can have, you know, uh, a diagnostic evaluation at that age, but it's not so good in the sense that uh, what happens is that they often get screened and then... It takes time to make the referral. Then they get on a waiting list for a diagnosis and there's often a long waiting list. And then after they get the diagnosis, they're on another waiting list to get the intervention. So, you know, there can be a year or before intervention begins. So now we're looking at 36, you know, or even, you know, 48 months of age. So we really want to shift all of that, that earlier. But the There was problems with this screening approach. Um, So typically how this is done at 18 and 24 months is with a parent questionnaire. And it's a simple questionnaire uh, given universally, for example, here at Duke in primary care, where you ask the parents about uh, 20 questions that have to do with those behaviors that I mentioned earlier. Is your child pointing? Are they using words? Um, Are they interested in games? Do they imitate you? So questions like that. And then depending on um, you know, how many yeses the, or no's in this case that the parent uh, says, then they would be considered uh, to be have a higher likelihood of autism. And hopefully, the uh, provider would make a referral. Now, one of the interesting findings is that most pediatricians still don't make a referral about 60% of the time. They, even with a positive screen on a parent questionnaire, they don't make a referral. They take a wait and see approach. And part of it, it has to do with just their um, lack of confidence in interpreting um, the information. Um, and part of it may have to do with the difficulty in finding services and some reluctance to, you know, send the parent on a journey that, that can be very
0: frustrating and costly. Or telling the parent that they think that the child is on the spectrum and then maybe being wrong, right? I mean, they could yes, be. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think that's an important point, too, because it, um, so the most common questionnaire is called the Modified Checklist for Autism and Toddlers or the MCHAT. And by the way, we are so happy we have the MCHAT and we are so happy that pediatricians use it. So I'm not in any way wanting to say we should discourage use of the MCHAT. But I, if the child is um, referred, you know, they, they will have about a 50-50 chance of having a diagnosis of autism. So that does mean that there will be some, you know, false positives, uh, many people waiting to get a diagnosis that don't need to um, and adding to those long wait lists. So all of that, I think, is contributing to uh, this reluctance to to make a referral. Uh, but there were other problems or there are other problems as well. So the the MCHAT does not work as well with families of color. So um, we don't completely understand it, but there are reasons why from different cultures that have different attitudes around providing information or how they interpret information. The other thing is that it does require literacy and understanding of child development. And, um, you know, many parents may not Um, have those skills. And so for those reasons, um, when it's used in real world settings like primary care, it's really not performing as well as it should. It also is not as good at picking up autism in girls. So what we wanted to do was to develop a methodology where we could directly observe the child's behavior because we know, I mean, autism is a behavioral diagnosis. So we should be able to directly observe what the child is doing and try to pick up on the behavioral signs. And some people have tried to have the pediatrician do this, but honestly, they don't have the time. Um, and also, they have so many things that they're screening for and concerned about. They don't have a time to do a diagnostic assessment as part of their well-child 15-minute often visit. So we decided to try to use a technique called computer vision analysis, um, which is a way of the computer uh, with a computer, with a, using a computer to measure... Um, behavior. And the way this works is we designed an app and um, this can be downloaded on a smartphone or a tablet. And it, the app displays a set of short movies. And these movies were strategically designed by our, by our team to elicit um, autism-related behaviors. So to elicit facial expressions and vocalizations. To assess, uh, to be able to see whether the baby is more interested in looking at objects versus uh, people. And so these, again, were very carefully designed. So the baby watches these brief movies. It's all done within uh, less than 10 minutes. And the camera that's in the device, whether it's a smartphone or a uh, tablet, is recording the baby's responses then the engineering team uses computer vision to automatically code a wide range of behaviors. So a computer can code facial expressions, vocalizations, head turns, body movements. It can do all of this. And what's really amazing is it can do it better than a human. And I, I truly believe this. And I, of course, have been observing behavior as a psychologist my entire career, And coding a lot of behavior. Uh, But I'll give you an example. So one of the early signs is not orienting when your name is called. Mm -hmm. So while the baby is watching the movies, someone behind them actually calls their name. And, you know, the baby will typically turn their head. And a computer can precisely measure that. And what we found was that, indeed, that that babies who then later had a diagnosis of autism did not turn their head as frequently. But some of them did turn their head. And what we found was that when they turned their head, they did it a second delayed compared to the neurotypical babies. And there's no way a clinician could have seen that. So the clinician would have said the baby doesn't have that sign, Uh but the computer was able to do this at a much higher resolution. So we are now um, we have now uh, validated this in the 18 to 24 month uh, age, and we also are we've just completed a study where we've shown that this can be done at home. So parents can download the app at home, and those data can be sent to the pediatrician ahead of time, right before the visit, so that they have um, assessments of the child behaviors. It can also be done over time to track uh, behavioral development. And the study we're doing now is um, starting at six months of age and then following babies longitudinally, and they were repeating the app over time. And then we'll see whether this can be used to eventually pick up on signs in in babies who then will have a diagnosis of autism. So I think it's, um, you know, I started my career by trying to understand autism in infants by looking at home videotapes that parents had gathered. And now, I'm using artificial intelligence and computer science to uh, measure these uh, on an app that's on a smartphone. So, I would have never imagined that.
0: Technology, you just can't keep up with it. It's amazing. So, let me ask you... One one wrap-up question, which has to do with why the early diagnosis is important. And obviously we've been talking about the concept of interventions without actually describing them. But if a parent gets the diagnosis early enough, what is it that the parent should then do to help the child?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question, because that is, you know, really the crux of the matter, the reason why we want to. Uh, detect autism early is to provide um, services and intervention. So uh, the, I'll, I'll describe um, a type of intervention that is very commonly used now. These are a class of interventions called naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions. They evolved out of traditional applied behavior analysis, which is a, a technique that has been used for many years as, a, as an intervention model. Uh, this is sort of a newer version that is uh, much more play based, much more naturalistic. Um, there's uh, we follow the the infant or the toddler's lead and uh, capitalize on their interests and preferences, which makes the um, the the therapy much more engaging, uh, both for the child and the parent. But essentially, these um, interventions. Uh, Use play and naturalistic interventions to facilitate the baby's, first of all, interest in other people. So to bring the baby's attention back to people, because remember, this infant or toddler is now much more interested in toys and uh, the, the world of objects than people. But there are ways of using play and inserting yourself into the interests of the of the baby or the, the child where you become part of their world. And then they um, will naturally start to be interested in you and looking at you. Once that happens, then we, again, use these techniques to teach the infant or the toddler um, how to use gestures, how to communicate um, through a set of sort of strate- strategies that can be taught um, to parents to use at home or, you know, delivered by a therapist. And so, um These parent, what are called parent mediated uh, therapies are ones where we work with the parent to learn these strategies that they can use during their everyday activities. So if you think about a a neurotypical infant, they are, we don't sit them down and say, I'm going to teach you now how to speak or I'm going to teach you how to um, recognize that this is a smile it happens during every interaction during the day is, a, is an opportunity for learning during mealtime and bath time uh, during, at the park. And so similarly, these interventions that are taught to parents are ones where the parents can use these strategies um, just throughout their uh, everyday activities. So, so we have a book, for example, it's called An Early Start for Your Child with Autism, and it is written for parents and it teaches them a wide range of strategies they can use. And it has to do with things like how do you position yourself? For example, when you sit down to, to read a book with your baby or your child, you're not going to sit them on your lap, you know, where they're faced away from you. You're going to sit them where they're faced forward to you. So you're going to have yourself in their zone of of uh, proximity and also in their spotlight, so to speak. Um, Then you're going to learn how to kind of capitalize on the things that the baby is interested in to start to facilitate things like turn-taking. You're going to do a lot of imitation of the baby's um, or the the toddler's uh, vocalizations and actions. So we find that, let's say that this um, two-year-old is, um, banging on something and not looking at you. If you have a, a drum too and you bang it the second same time, that two year old um, with autism is going to be start looking at you, playing with it, and pretty soon you're in a fun back and forth game where you're both you know playing the drums together. And so these are relatively easy to learn. Parents are very good at, at learning them. And they've been shown to um, really facilitate early social uh, and communication development. So we're, we're very excited about, you know, parents using these. And they, again, they can be delivered by therapists as well. And they can make a, a huge difference in children's outcomes.
0: Well, Dr. Dawson, I want to thank you for joining me. This has been really interesting. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to learn a lot from hearing from you. So thank you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And again, we'd like to hear from you about what you think about this podcast and what you'd like to hear from us. So please go to our website, speakingofpsychology.org, and look for a link to the listener survey.